0: I have with me a cheater this morning. Uh, During the welcome time, I was down here and I was uh, looking at something in my Bible and one of our men came by and says, too late to cram now. So we're going to pray and go home. (coughs) No, that's not right. I have in my hand a cheater this morning. Uh, There was a time in life, Baptist life, church life, where this was commonplace in every church. This is something strange. It is foreign. It is called a hymnal. (laughs) <laughs> I'm talking about factionalism this morning, and so just for the, case, just for the record, uh, this is not some protest kind of movement for me with Brian at all. Uh, matter of fact, you'll see before we go what I mean by that. Um, we have hidden away in these books that are hidden away in some churches, some in pews and uh, some in rooms, but uh, we have hidden away some interesting stories behind the hymns that we like to sing. There's a couple of hymns that I want to bring to your attention this morning. First of all, here's one that's called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. How many of you know that? If I had to make you... Okay, well, just one of you stand up and start singing. No, don't do that. Rock of Ages, Clef for Me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Here's another one for you. This happens to be one of my favorites. It's uh, by a guy named Wesley. He says, love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crown. I'm going to switch verses on you now and drop to the second verse where he says this. Take away our bent to sinning. Alpha and Omega B, end of faith as its beginning, set our hearts at liberty. Great hymns of the faith, things that we look to for many years to form our doctrine. And by the way, that's a dangerous proposition because some really bad doctrine in some hymns. But in this particular case, those two songs underscore the fundamental part as I approach this sermon today. And that is much of church life is eaten up by opposition, factionalism, two factions fighting against each other based on their own agenda. Those two hymns, by the way, uh, fit that exactly. One of the Wesley brothers wrote that song, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And there was another guy, a guy by the name of Top Lady who, that's really his name, who was the editor of a magazine. He was a Calvinist By nature, by choice. Well, he would have to say by nature if he was a Calvinist. And he was one of those worst kind of Calvinists. The aggressive kind. And when Wesley wrote his song, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, and that particular line that I read, Take away our bent to sinning. I want you to just kind of wrap your minds around that truth. That's not the sermon for the day, but it's worth hanging on to a little bit. Well when he wrote that top lady was so enraged by the idea that our bent to sinning could possibly be taken away that he wrote this scathing article. He did a mathematical conclusion that by or a mathematical formula that brought him to the conclusion that said, by the time a man is 80 years old, he's guilty of millions of sins. His conclusion is, it's absolutely impossible that you would have your bent to sinning taken away. And so he wrote a poem. That poem later was put to music, and it is the song, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Isn't it interesting that two of the great hymns of our faith that we go to and hold on to, and stroke them like a pet of some kind, those two songs cause a great controversy in the church. That's kind of the way it is with church people. Factions emerge where people hang out. You understand what I mean by that? By the way, the message title today is Love... Get it? And it has a question mark on it. I'll come back to that a little bit later. But I want you to see that part of it first. But here's the first big truth I want you to get. Factions emerge where people hang out. A number of years ago now, I was uh, subjected to some intense study. Uh, It was one of those intense studies where you get a grade for it and you don't get to go further in the program if you don't do it. So I was subjected to this study. And it turned out to be one of the most beneficial studies in my ministry career. I hate to say career with ministry, but you understand what I mean by that. In my ministerial life. It was this idea, it's it's almost a sociological or a counseling kind of a study. But this guy named Greenleaf comes up with this term we call triangulation. And here's the basic principle of that. When there are three people Involve. Well, let me say it this way, when there are two people who are at odds with one another, right? you put this to work in your home, Okay, think about your family dynamics. When there are two people there and they get to be at odds with one another, many times, maybe even most times, they will tend to go grab a third person and pull that third person into the conflict. That's the triangle effect. And the reason they do that is because it's, first of all, they're chicken, all right? You understand what I mean by that? They don't necessarily want to go deal with the problem with the person who is the problem for them. They would much rather go grab an innocent third party and pull them into it and then labor with them to make their case at just how sorry an individual my husband is. I don't have a husband, I'm talking about you. Happens all the time with people. It happens in family units. If you have a child in your home, parents, be aware that that child is inherently smart enough to know that if daddy says no, well, actually, if mama says no, daddy might say yes. And so they go to daddy and never talk about what mom already said And so dad, being the fun-loving guy that he is, says, sure, it's okay. You have just been triangled. Factions grow from that. Happens all over the place. Happens in our families. It happens in business. Happens, well, could it happen in a church? Is it possible that churches could operate in such a way that people who have issues with one another or groups that have issues with one another might not ever really go to one another. They would just pull in another person or another group to help deal with the problem. First of all, you've got to understand, Jesus never endorsed that. Never. What Jesus said was, you have a problem with your brother, go to the press. Not what he said, right? What did Jesus say? you have a problem with your brother go to your brother get it straight but you see we we've we we have better ideas than that and so we triangle and so we pull people in and we do it kind of like these hymnal guys here that we're talking about that we do it because we believe we're so right that we need support for our side this happens in churches all the time true story that's going to be a short story Protect people involved in it. I had not been pastor of the, by the way, this week marks our end of our third year uh, on staff here. And I, I'm praying that you'll give me another year to try it and see if y'all, see if I can figure it out and you'll let me stay another year. But end of third year right now. We had not been on the field a full week. But that somebody from the congregation came to our house, sat on our living room furniture and said to us in no uncertain terms, these people are dangerous. And they started highlighting people in the church. You know what that's called? First of all, that's called, they don't know who they're talking to. Secondly, that's called dumb. And thirdly, that's called triangling. But most importantly, it's called sowing dissension among the brethren. Factionalism is a part of any group where people gather. By the way, that's no different what I just explained. It's no different than what Paul faced with the Corinthian church. That's the entire background of the letter that we call First Corinthians. Paul was writing to a group of people who were so divided and so factionalized in the way they were doing their Christian business that it was killing them internally and it was absolutely destroying the cause of Christ in the community. So, Paul writes into that mess... And he says, here's the problem, and here's some things you do to fix the problem, and here's some truths that you need to hang on to. And so into that big discussion that he had with them, we find inserted into that 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It actually begins, this little section does, with the end of chapter 12, where Paul says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he talks about love. And so for over two months, we've been... Walking, crawling our way through this 13th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians so that we might get a handle on and wrap our minds around the basic truths about how we should behave as fellow Christians in this place. This is not a theoretical exercise. Paul has deliberately, painstakingly laid out 15 different descriptions characteristics of what love is. He uses verbs to do that just to let them know this is more than just pretty stuff to say at a wedding. It's more than just a nice saying to frame and hang on the wall of your homes. This is how you behave with one another in love. Factionalism is critical. It was critical there. It's critical for us that we get it eliminated in the way we do church business. Why is it so important for a church to overcome factionalism? Well, here's one thing. I've said it in a number of different ways. Factions and the competing agendas that accompany them cripple an organization and its ministry. Make sure you got that. Because the reality is that when groups are involved in fighting for their cause, they happen to believe that their cause is what's going to take that organization where it needs to go. That's fine if there's just one group. Well, even them is not necessarily fine. But if every group believes that and that because they believe that, every group then becomes a fighting opponent against the other one, there's no way that church can get where it needs to go. This competing agenda that happens with this, uh, this uh, factionalism that we're talking about serves to just undercut everything that a church tries to do. Hang on to that term, competing agenda. We, we see that in places you'd never expect. One of, the, one of the problems that I've encountered as a young pastor... I wasn't that young. I was just a new pastor. I was serving in a church. Many of you have heard me say this in committee meetings. It's it's a critical part of how we came to be who we were and what we were doing as a church. And so we did a strategic plan and we did a a study of the community in which we were living. And according to the Arbitron ratings and surveys of the area in which we live, that's what radio stations use to target their uh, advertising. Within a two-mile radius of the church in which we live, 51% of the population was under the age of 18. Now, that's important if you're going to reach into that community. By the way, it was also an economically depressed area. People didn't have the ability to go way off somewhere else to go to church, and we were not reaching into that little part of who we were as a church, into that community. And so the church, together, the whole church said, we will be focused in trying to reach young people, children and teenagers, because 51% of the immediate area around the church were those people. That caused a major turn in the life of that church. Resources got repositioned. One of the things that needed to happen was because those people were economically depressed, we needed some way to transport them even to church. But if we were going to take them to do anything, they didn't have any way to do that. So the church decided we needed to buy a bus. We bought a bus. I was thinking, this church is moving for the glory of God. Silly me. In church one Sunday morning, I was in the office area. It was during the Sunday school hour. One of our dear old ladies, God lover. <laughs> Only God loves her is what I really meant to say by that. She came into the office and she pinned me up against the wall. And she began to rail on me because our church didn't care about the senior citizens. Now, whether, whether you knew it or not, I don't normally go to church to get treated like that. It's not why I go. It just happens that way sometimes. Same for you, by the way. And she began to just press me about the fact that we're spending all this money on a bus and the senior adults can't even use it. Now, as it usually goes with those kind of agendas, there was no factual validity to what she was saying, except in her mind, she decided that's how it was. Competing agendas will rip a church apart and kill its ministry. What do you do about that? You know the old saying, United we stand, how's it finish? Divided we fall. We love that saying. Sounds great. That's probably something Abraham Lincoln might have said. Very patriotic-sounding, 4th of July time of the year. United we stand, divided we fall. You know, I've said this before from the pulpit, and now's a good time for me to remind you. When kingdoms are threatened, kings go to war. That's just another way of saying that factions in the church have a way of rallying people. Now we're back to the triangulating... Tri- the, the, the three-dotted thing, we fight about stuff like that. When kingdoms are threatened, kings go to war. Paul has something to say about that to a Corinthian church and stretching through the ages, to every other church that calls itself Christian in nature. It is not God's design that we fight. By the way, if you're visiting with us today, this is not a church that's fighting. As far as I know, now we might be after this sermon, we'll find out. But as far as I know, you're not in a church where you're going to have to watch yourself as you walk out because you don't want to get shot. That's not us. By the way, it's not going to be us. It cannot be us. It's always better to preach this kind of sermon when we're not having these kind of problems in mass than it is when all of a sudden they're everywhere and people are emotionally invested. God's word says, love one another. One of the distinguishing marks of the church according to the apostle who was named John, one of the sons of thunder when Jesus was here. But years later, the beloved disciple who says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. They'll know we're Christians by our love. So we come finally to the end of this series. And now we're out of chapter 13 in First Corinthians and into chapter 14, but don't get your hopes up. We're only going to be one word into the 14th chapter. Because the first word that Paul gives us here is both a conclusion to chapter 13 and a transition into chapter 14 and what comes after. I'm not so interested in the transition part of it as I am in the conclusion. So we'll limit our our conversation this morning to this word. There's an imperative that he uses at the top of that verse. Pursue love, he says. That's a strange way for him to say it, really pursue love the picture of this word for us is one that Paul is actually fond of we're going to I'll show you a couple of places where he has said that before but let me give you a kind of a working definition of this word it's the word that says, well, pursue is a great way to say it. By the way, this is one of the times, this verse, for those of you who have the NIV, this is one of the verses that caused me to not preach out of the NIV anymore because I don't think they do a great job in interpreting the intent of this word. Matter of fact, it's not a good job at all. The word itself means to press forward. It means to run. It means to be zealous for something. Maybe the most famous of Paul's writings that we would remember that's tied to this is in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And in verse 12 only, that's all I'm going to read. He says, not that I have already attained this or am already perfect, but I, here's the word, I press on to make it my own. Paul says, I'm not arrived yet. I'm still working at this thing called spiritual health. One of the ways Paul uses this thing regularly throughout his writings is with that connotation. It's the point of spiritual growth and development and the need that we have to push for that, to strive for that, to not just sit back and be passive and hope it comes to us, but to get it. Get it? The idea of the verb here has to do with a hunter. As he's chasing his prey. We're at that time of the year. Or pretty close to it. What I've learned in three years in Southeast Texas. That in the very short order. If you haven't already started doing it. You guys who are deer hunters are going to start doing things to get ready for deer season. Putting corn out. Making sure your. um, Blinds are in shape. And all of those kind of things. That goal for you as a hunter. That move that you have to get every little piece right. Camouflage needs to be just right. You need to make sure that you got the right line of sight. You need to know where the deer are moving. All of those decisions that come into going out there on opening day of deer season and hoping to bring home a deer, all of that is this word that says pursue. It is a very active word. It is a very focused word. It is one that is driven to accomplish the task. Paul says, "On when it comes to love, get it. But that's a problem for us. That's a problem for us because we don't necessarily think of love as something that we have to pursue. We think of it as something that needs to come to us. Paul wants to make sure, in chapter 14, verse 1, as he wraps up this whole conversation about love, he wants to make sure that his people understand. Chapter 13 is not a theoretical exercise. Paul lays it out in such a way that he says to his people, you now understand a little better what love is, so get after it. That's why I put a question mark there, by the way, at the end of my title. Because I don't want us to fall into that pattern that says and that belief that says that uh, people need to give it to me. It's not about that. It's about you giving it to them. (laughs) With this series, it's been interesting for me to listen to the conversations around church. And some that come directly at me and some that are on the side. I'm intrigued by the variety of responses I've gotten to the series itself. One of the ways that you know as a pastor that you're preaching the stuff that needs to be preached is you start hearing from people about it. And sometimes you hear stuff where people are basically saying, I'm not going to be loving, preacher. You just need to understand, I am not going to be loving. Now, they would never say it that way. I've never yet heard somebody come to my office and say, you know what, all that garbage you're preaching about love, I'm not doing that. Never heard anybody say that. Here's what I hear them say. You ready? Here's what I hear them say. Now, it means, okay, I, I see their lips moving, and here's what I hear them say. I'm not doing that. But I hear them, I see them say it this way. You know, so-and-so, they're not loving me the way you've been preaching. <laughs> now, among other things, it tells me they don't understand. They, they haven't been listening. Remember, let me come back to the definition of love. Love is me investing in you, often at great cost to me. But I invest in you for your benefit. And in doing that, I help elevate you to a level you could never get to by yourself. That's biblical love. It is best pictured by Jesus Christ down from heaven to this sinful earth. Taking on human form and being nailed to a cross for our sins. He didn't deserve that. It cost him greatly, but his love for us caused him to do that investment. And he raised us to a level we could never get on our own. That's the gospel. That same love is ours to give. And when you say those people are not loving me the way they're supposed to, I say, Welcome to the club. How do you think Jesus felt hanging on that cross? But if you're so focused on not getting it, you've missed it. You've missed the whole point. And by the way, you become a faction to yourself. And triangulation says you will go find people who believe the same way you do and pull them onto your team, and then we have war. Here's another way I hear people say I'm not going to love. They just flat out say I don't care what the standard is. I'm used to operating this way. I'm comfortable with the way I'm living, and that's just how I'm going to do it. And we dress that up a lot of different ways. Well, yeah, it's just my nature. You know, it's it's my it's my ancestry. You know, I'm Irish. We're just mean people. Now, if you're Irish, I don't know if Irish are mean people or not. Here's some other ways people have responded to the series. I regularly get this. You know, preacher, I want to do that. I, I hear it. As God's word. And I understand, I don't have any choice. I have to do that. Man, that's hard. Yeah, it is. Other people say, I'm trying. I I know that I shouldn't feel this way, but I'm trying. Good for you. Keep on trying. Here's what I want you to hear, though. Paul will not let us off of the hook because it's hard. By the way, Paul's just the vehicle here. That's the Holy Spirit truth. You don't get a free pass just because the Christian life is hard to do. It is the standard that Jesus lived. It's the standard that God holds us to. And under God, it's the standard we must adopt as a church. Hard or not. Let me take a couple of other these times that Paul uses the word Pursue. That fits exactly into the context of what he's saying here. Romans chapter 14 and verse 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. You know what I found interesting? When I type that in, upbuilding, that comes straight out of the ESV. The online dictionaries and spell check says that's a misspelled word, upbuilding. You know what that tells me? That's not even part of the conversation in American life. Upbuilding is not. We live in a culture and a society that is all about the fight. You can't even watch half of a newscast without seeing that that's true. Nationally, internationally, or under God in the school districts locally. We're not about building each other up. We're about fighting. And as a church, we must understand that that part of society will seep into, and actually we have a lot of carriers who bring that garbage in with them in the way they think. And by the way, that's all of us because that's our sin nature. Paul says, pursue this like a hunter going after its prey. Work for this. Make peace. Mutual upbuilding. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. See that no one... Rep- okay, now see, I hate it when Paul gets into my road trampled family motto stuff. You know the road trampled family motto? I told you again last week. You squirt me with a water gun, I run over you with my truck. Right? So Paul says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Oh, I hate it when he does that. Don't you? When God uses his word to just take his thumb and just rub it in a little bit. You see that way you think? That's just not very loving, is it, preacher? See that no one repays anyone evil for evil but always seek to do good. By the way, that always seek pursue. Always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And there he goes again, Paul. Always doggedly evangelistic seek to pursue good doing among yourselves and to everybody else too. This is a big deal. This how should we behave question. And all through scripture, we keep coming up to this love wall. He won't let us off the hook. It is the New Testament charge to us as Christians. Get it, get it right Pursue this. So here's a nice little way for me to hang this in your head so that it can go with you. Because I know you won't remember a whole sermon. So remember this little truth. Selfless has to trump selfish for Christians. I did not say shellfish. I hope that will help you remember too. Selfless has to trump selfish for Christians. I'll guarantee you, in your life, when you start living totally at a selfish level, you set yourself up for lots of fights and ultimately being alone. And that's contrary to the gospel. Put it this way. If Jesus had adopted the standard that most of us adopt in our lives for how we deal with each other, he would have never gone to the cross. One of our problems, I think, is that we work to make this conditional. We try to hang it on other people that they have to behave a certain way in order for them to earn our love. And if that's the way you think, I understand. People can hurt you bad enough that that's what you want to think. But let me tell you something. That's just not God's kind of love. Again, the acid test here is if Jesus treated you that way, you'd never have a chance to get saved. I like this quote from Ben Witherington III. He's one of my favorite writers, commentators especially. He's a a scholar among scholars. Ben Witherington III says this, Agape, that's this love we're talking about, is an attitude of radical and completely selfless concern for others which cannot be readily combined with concepts like rights or fairness. Both of which imply that the person has certain legitimate claims for himself. Do you hear what he said? When we reduce our lives to the point of saying, you owe this to me because it's my right. You have set yourself up as being more important. You have set yourself up to be unloving in the way you deal with other people. So today... As we close this series, by the way, you know I've skipped about half of what Paul said about love. I am calling Crestwood Baptist Church to elevate love intentionally as the normal behavior around here. That's a game changer. For those of you taking notes, I'm calling on us as a church to elevate this kind of love to be normal here. It doesn't need to be seen in pockets. It needs to be the order of the day for us. It really shouldn't matter whether I say that or not, because God has already said that's the order of the day of every day for us as a Christian. But what I would like to do here is, as we close this series out, is to raise this to the level that it is always there for us. In every conversation you have, in every function that you are part of here, that we recognize that taking sides and building sides and having kingdoms, all of those things just kill us and they kill our witness. Teresa and I recently have been just driving around town, some areas of lumberton proper and even beyond that areas that we haven't seen yet i continue to be amazed at the hundreds the thousands of people that are stuck out in the trees around here well i mean how else do you say it they they find a place that's a little bit secluded and they stick a house out there you know what i get that it's nice to get away from people right Remember, cannibals, don't have, you don't have to be a cannibal getting get fed up with people. That's the deal. Give me a house out in the woods. But you know what? In every one of those houses, there's at least one person who desperately needs Jesus Christ. Hello, that's an amen moment, y'all. But no, that's okay. Let's just move on. That's true. As a church, we have to have that perspective. We've got to see that there are people beyond the ones we got. We love us. We're good people. I love coming to church. Well, most, I, I like it. <laughs> I love coming to church here. I do. I love you. I do. But for every one of you out there, there's a thousand out in the sticks who need Jesus Christ. Who's going to tell them? And under God, when we do tell them, and they decide to come here, they don't need to step into a war between factions. They want a war? Just flip on the television. Just go to school. Just go to work. You get war everywhere you turn. This needs to be a safe place of peace because the prince of peace takes up residence here. Paul says get it. Bad English, but it communicates well. There ain't no question mark at the end of that. Paul says, get it, pursue it, make it so. So let me finish just in about a minute here. Four suggestions for you. How do you do this? Okay. It'd be bad for me to just get up here and preach about how bad it is not to have it and not say, okay, here's ways to get it. Well, so here's some things to keep in mind. Here's the first one. Pay attention. And what I mean by that is pay attention to yourself. Try to catch yourself being unloving. Try to catch yourself triangulating with somebody else, which is another way of building a faction. Pay attention, not just to yourself, although that's where it begins, Start paying attention and listening to the conversations that are happening around you. So then the second one is, don't accept failure. Now, we love to just write off, well, you know, I'm only human. Yeah, you've been only human for 70 years. Time to suck it up and get better. By the way, I don't have anybody in mind. I don't know how old you are. Pay attention and don't accept failure. Raise the bar, raise the standard in your life that says, I may have a habit of causing dissension, but I'm stopping it. Don't accept it. Pursue love, Paul says. Thirdly, allow others to help you. Now, here's the hard part, because if you're really serious about this, then you're going to be sitting in meetings and you're going to be sitting across the table at fellowships like we had today. You're going to be doing youth stuff and you're going to be stuck in a bus with these people who don't shower and in your head you're going to immediately go to some faction kind of living unlove will bubble out of your mouth or into your thoughts it's a good time to allow each other to help us raise the bar so lovingly if somebody comes to you and challenges your unloving behavior well, I guess you'll have a choice to make, won't you? And finally, ultimately, always walk with God. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot do this on your own. You're not even going to want to do it without his help. Remember, God never calls you to do something, but that he also will equip you to make it happen. Get it. Let's pray. So, Father, we ask you to help us with this. These are the things that we would prefer you would have just left out of your word. A lot easier for us to just go with the flow and live the way we've always lived, but we know that there's a reason. You put these things here for our benefit, for the benefit of others, and mostly for the benefit of the kingdom that we are called here to promote. So help us to get love. If there's anybody here today who's really struggling with the stuff we're talking about, I pray for an extra measure of your grace for them. That you would speak to them even now. Speak through the potential anger. Speak through the guilt. Speak through the self-talk that would talk them right out of following you. And help them to hear your voice that says, I love you. I gave my son for you. I have a way to help you get this right. That they would embrace you and embrace the love that comes with that. That you would change them even now for your glory. Father, for any of us here going through this, and we know that we leave behind us a trail of people that need us to make it right. Give us the grace we need to go to them. Make it right. Pursue love. Change lives now is our prayer in Jesus' name.